Hi, I'm Dave Swordlick from StoryCub Video Picture Books and Uptown Podcast Studios. I like to say this, I am a proud member of Ed North, an Entech meetup group located in the cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul in Minnesota. Check it out at ednorth.org, and I highly recommend you check it out. All the events are free. It is a place to network, to learn. It's amazing. So head on over to ednorth.org org and check it out i will tell you about our amazing guest coming up but first i thought i would throw in a little piece of non-etiquette i guess you would say normally i don't reply to these emails but uh, i received an email not too long ago that i thought well, you know what this product might be something for me so i set up a virtual meeting and i kept asking so what services do you provide what services do you provide? I asked that, I don't know how many times, for 45 minutes. And it finally came down to this. With that said, I'm going to ask again. I, I still don't know what you do. Do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, of course. I mean, that's, that's uh, you know, as I said from the outset, if we are a good fit, then I can tell you about the program. Well, um, if, I, if I don't know what you do, I, don't, I, I can't tell if it's a good fit for me. That's, that's true. That's true. Um, but you booked a call with us, right? So we get to we get to make the rules. Needless to say, I pretty much ended that. <laughs> I ended that call. Back to the more important stuff. But wow, what uh, kahunas, huh? All right, Margaret Jakes Leslie, who has been involved in education throughout her career, is our guest on this. Ed North Ed Tech Podcast. I'm excited because I think you're going to get excited too. Harvard grad and just so smart and is working for a great nonprofit college possible right now. We're going to talk about her career, what she does, and education and technology. Probably two good subjects to cover on this podcast. So it is Margaret Jakes Leslie on the Ed North Ed Tech Podcast. We get to make the rules. Margaret, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dave. Great to be here. It's great to have you. And uh, you're currently at, uh, you're a director uh, at College Possible, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. But before that, can you tell us about kind of where'd you grow up? Let's start there. Yes. So um, I grew up, uh, people in the Twin Cities will appreciate this. I grew up right near the state fairgrounds. <sighs> Uh, first little entrepreneurial business, not terribly creative, but I had a lemonade stand. And I come from a family of educators. And I always bring this up in conversations of this type because for my family, it really is sort of is the family business, have parents, cousins, aunts, uncles, um, all of whom are educators at various levels and at various types of institutions. So that really sort of grounds my work of seeing family commitment and family experience to education. So I went from the Twin Cities onto Grinnell College and then um, segued from there into higher education textbook publishing. And then from there moved into more of an ed tech space and, and eventually onto College Possible, um, really thinking about 
higher education and institutions and what institutions provide to students and don't provide to students. So uh, it's interesting that you mentioned like you grew up you're in a family of education and the analogy that I immediately thought of is music. How uh, conductors have kids who end up in music or you know there's a lot of musical families and I'm not talking about the Partridge family necessarily. <laughs> you found your path very early it sounds like. You were meant to do this. Well, what's so funny is I didn't realize it at the time. So what I the, the way it really worked is that I was an English major, and I thought English majors go into publishing. And the first publishing job I could find and get was at McGraw-Hill Higher Education. And this sort of opened up the world of education publishing to me and education content. And that part was really fun and exciting for me because, yes, as a family of educators, it was sort of it felt really um, natural to be part of an ecosystem that was really focused on providing content to institutions. And were, were you able to get advice from family members along the way, or were you past that uh, doing digital stuff? The most of my family's experience has been in fairly traditional systems and, and institutions, generally in the K-12 space, and I am have mostly been in the higher education space. Um, so I haven't leaned on that quite as much. I will say the thing that is very interesting about higher education generally is that all in education tend to have a really large reference bias. So we all sort of look back at, I was in school, so I know how school works. Well, that's great, but your ex experience is an experience of one person and one student. For instance, I went to a private residential institution, and that is really the minority experience of college-going students in the United States. So sometimes when people ask me, including family members, like, well, why don't more students graduate in four years or things like that? It's really reflective of a question coming from that person's experience. And the higher education is a much more diverse landscape than that. So you kind of got your feet wet a little bit at McGraw-Hill, which is a very well-known name. Mm -hmm. uh, and then where, so where did you move on from there? Yes, so McGraw-Hill, um, I originally started, <laughs> I always give this as a good example, I proofread indexes. So I really was doing a lot of very direct content management and development of college textbooks in a variety of spaces. And from there, a, and I was in Chicago, and a sales position opened up with McGraw-Hill Higher Education in their business and economics group in Minnesota. And I was eager to move back to Minnesota. And I thought, I have no idea about business or economics, and I have no idea about sales, but I had a friend in HR who convinced me to apply for it. And um, I did, and it was a tremendous learning experience. So essentially, I, I spent two years visiting uh, 10 different colleges in Minnesota, visiting business and economics faculty, talking with them about their course content and course materials. And this is really when the sort of print to digital conversion was it was underway, but it was uh, very different from where it is today. So it was really still very print focused. It was just a tremendous learning experience. The, those sort of sales skills that I learned fairly early in my career are skills that I use. It was always just one of those experiences. It just goes to show you, you don't know what you're going to learn that you'll lose, use again later. Yeah, that, that's true. Uh, were you dealing in floppy disks or... No, okay. no, no floppy disks, but we did refer to things as e-cartridges, which is quite funny because 
they weren't cartridges by any means, but we referenced the physical in order to help people understand what it actually was. And registered that as a trademark. So, uh, yes. yeah. so, so you had that, you had that going for you. So you moved to Boston. Yes. So um, from that sales work, I, I then segued to working for Cengage Learning, which is actually a little bit bigger than McGraw-Hill Higher Education, also a very large content provider for higher education. And there I led the English composition product portfolio. So really managing a variety of titles, digital products, authors, sort of mapping out the whole PL and timing for all of the different products. And while there, one of the biggest pieces of work was really accelerating the print to digital conversion. So thinking about the English composition course, and that is the, that's like English 101, how to write a college paper. How do I write a good argument? How do I back it up with evidence? How do I make a conclusion? How do I have a thesis statement? Those are the skills of the English composition course, and it is a very skill heavy course. So that really focused how we thought about the print to digital conversion. What about video? Was uh, was video involved at all at the time? Yeah, it was. So one of the things that was really starting to be much more influential within English composition at that time was something called multimodal composition. So really helping students understand when and how to use different media. So I'm not going to use a video to show someone my bookshelf, but I might use video to show someone how to cook something. So really matching the media with the function, because that is critical thinking. You need to think about what are you trying to convey and you need to think about the medium in which you convey it. And video is one of those options. So we really were looking at what are the different tools that we can pass on to students to help them with these critical thinking skills. Because some students uh, can learn better with video, right? Uh, some students can learn better with uh, text. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there, uh, one of the joys of that job was visiting English composition faculty across the country. And faculty would say things to me like, I can't believe students are writing their entire papers on their phones. And it's true. They were. They absolutely were. And there were a couple of reasons for that. One, convenience. Two, there's a large swath of students who actually don't have stable access to a computer. So the phone actually is their main computing device. So it was this interesting push and pull because there were faculty who said, we need, like, we shouldn't be supporting this. And we really want students to be writing papers in a traditional way. And then there were other faculty who completely embraced it and said, how can we support students in doing their work on their phones? Just really recognizing that students are coming from a variety of places in life. Yeah, because I know there's a lot of uh, low-income students, and their phone is not only their phone, but it is also their television. It is their word processor. It is it's it's everything. So, tell us a little bit about Education Pioneers. Oh yes, so Education Pioneers is a talent development pipeline program. It's a national program that works to match people who have interest in education. Um, and traditionally, most people in education pioneers have either some public policy experience or some business level experience and are interested in segueing into education and education pioneers helps enable that. So it matches people to summer programs, usually while they're in or summer internships, usually while they're in graduate school to help expose them to a new sector. So it's really thinking about how can we get more people with different sets of skills into education? Exactly. What did you do there? 
Yeah. So I was working at Persistence Plus while I was part of Education Pioneer. So I was um, sort of in both those worlds at the same time. And so Education Pioneers essentially meets for two to three days per month over a three-month window while people are matched at their internships. And I was a little bit of an exception that I already had a job at, at Persistence Plus that then continued, but I had friends there who they'd done their first year of business school and they were going into their second year of business school and they spent the summer working for Boston Public Schools. And while they were working for Boston Public Schools, they, they went to Education Pioneers to learn more about the sector. From there, did you take some time off so that is probably just me being in grad school. So that's if you see a little gap that was while I was at grad, in grad school. Okay, um, well, let's just mention that. Uh, so yeah. education, uh, Harvard University Graduate School of Education, Master of Education, uh, Higher Education, Higher Education Administration. <gasps> Hold on, I need to take a deep breath. Harvard Educa uh, Extension <laughs> School, uh, Higher Education Strategy and Management. Harvard Education School, Social Entrepreneurship and Innovation in Education, and then Grinnell College Post-Baccalaureate Fellow in the Humanities, Feminist Theory, and Dance, and a BA in English at Grinnell College. Uh, how'd you have time to actually get a job? And man, <laughs> that's crazy. Very impressive. In, in, in all sincerity, very impressive. So right now, you're at College Possible. And College Possible is a nonprofit. Uh, you're a director there. Could you tell us what College Possible is all about? Yeah, so College Possible is a national nonprofit that helps students from low income backgrounds both get to college and graduate from college. And it was founded in 2000 here in St. Paul. Um, and it's now national. So we have sites across the country. And I lead our work in a group called Catalyze. And we are essentially the partnership model with higher education institutions. So our group of Catalyze works directly with colleges across the country. So we have colleges in California, New York, Maryland, Ohio, Tennessee, so all, all over the country um, to help them launch the College Possible model, which is essentially a model of near peer coaching to help students graduate from college. So how have things changed in the COVID era? Oh gosh, um, yes. So our coaches are all, for the most part, doing entirely remote coaching. The campuses with whom we work have really varied in their approach to in-person versus online learning. So what has been interesting is that coaches are trained by College Possible in a curriculum of about three core domains, academic success, personal well-being, and financial management. But students very commonly come to their coach because the coach graduated the year before or two years before from the same institution with questions that they don't know who to ask. It's like, I'm a student. I thought I was going to be in person and now I'm online. I have no idea who can answer this question for me. I hardly know what the question really is. I just need to talk to someone about it, whether that's interpreting a particular communication from the financial aid office or whether that's figuring out how to go to office hours. We saw a real uptick in students approaching their coaches with sort of these catch-all. I call them the catch-all questions because it's sort of, it's just a good example of how that relationship is important. Can you give us an example? 
Yeah. So we had students who were uh, one who was formerly in the foster system and she knew she had heard that she was eligible for more support, financial support from the state because she was formerly in the foster system. She had no idea on campus who to talk to about this. She, was, she started with her coach. First of all, that makes a bunch of sense because it's it can be an emotional moment to say that you were formerly in the foster system. You might want to say that to someone who you already have a relationship with instead of someone who you don't yet know. And then she also just had no idea where to go. So um, it turns out on that particular campus, there was a, an office dedicated to supporting students who were coming out of the foster system. So we were able to make that connection very quickly. But it's a good example of would she have actually reached out to that office without the coach? It's not entirely clear to me, but the coach really functioned as that sort of connective tissue. I, I have no doubt that you made a huge impact on her life, her direction. Well, and, and that's not me. That's our coach. Well, when I say you, I mean your team. Yes. Uh, that's, yeah. that's what I'm referring to. Yeah. Uh, you made a dramatic impact on her life and helped her move in a direction that she wanted to go to and probably would not have without your help. Right. Right. And I think, you know, one of the things that's really true about college going is that there's, and this is so true for me as someone who comes from a family of education, there was a lot about college that I sort of implicitly knew because my family had gone to college. And often this is called sort of college knowledge. And it's hard to have that knowledge if your family has not gone to college. You come in with so many strengths if you are first in your family and you have done so much work to get there and you have tremendous amount of assets. There's also this weird navigational component of higher education institutions that tends to privilege students from families that have already gone to college. So students whose families have gone to college are much more likely to go to office hours. They're much more likely to contest a grade, things of that type. They're just, they're just sort of louder advocates for themselves. So a lot of it is helping students learn how to be good advocates for themselves. It, it kind of reminds me of when the government came out with all the stimulus money for businesses, uh, these huge companies with a, a floor of lawyers ready to pounce on it did. And the I think that I could be wrong, but I think the majority of the money went to these companies. There's so many s small businesses that didn't know where to turn to and how to yeah. do it. And by the time they did, the money was gone. Yeah, it's it's really true. And I think what draws a lot of people to working in education is knowing that education can really fundamentally change lives. The, the thing that's just really true as you get farther into the systems is you realize that the systems are built to, to privilege certain groups of students and there are more barriers for other students. And so that really, I, I know you mentioned my graduate school work, what sort of propelled me into graduate school was I thought, oh, I really wanna work at a college and this will help me work at a college. And what I realized while I was in graduate school is that there's actually a lot of ways to make difference in education and be supportive of higher education even from sort of slightly outside. So I call it sort of the higher education fringe. And that was true when I was at Persistence Plus and certainly true at College Possible now too. College Possible as being a nonprofit, I've spoken to uh, educators and businesses that some are uh, companies, some are nonprofits. Why nonprofit? 
Well, I, I mean, I think it's really what is your animating impulse as an organization. And there's definitely, and I would say this is true persistence plus, there's definitely for-profits that are double bottom line. So they're looking both at their bottom line in terms of money and in terms of impact. And there's lots of for, good examples of for-profits that are of that type. Nonprofits say first and foremost, impact first, and then they're also, they need to be financially sustainable organizations. And in fact, the work of our Catalyze team is part of helping College Possible be financially sustainable in that we are the fee-for-service model of the organization. And I would say if someone's starting a new, just sort of in that very early startup space, there's a real decision to be made about whether being for-profit or nonprofit. And I think in education, it's not always clear which one is the better fit as you are in early stages. So I think it really varies from what you're trying to accomplish. And uh, let's not be tricked because we all know that there are a lot of websites using .org that are not nonprofit. Does College Possible raise funds from donations? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of our operating funds come from relationships with large foundations. So philanthropy is certainly the largest percentage of where our funding comes from. And generally, it's not from individual donors. It's from large foundations that work in the education space. And we are, like many education organizations, both national and sort of and somewhat local. So we have locations in Omaha, and they may have relationships with foundations in Omaha that go just to the Omaha site versus the national office has more relationships with more national um, foundations. And I'm, I'm part of that national office based in St. Paul. Gotcha. So you, you have uh, Omaha stakes as uh, one of, one of your, uh, uh, right. because they're based, stakes, they're, yes. they're based in Nebraska. You've been with college possible for uh, more than two years. Where's the future for college possible? Is it expansion? Is it, getting more detailed? Uh, where do you see College Possible going? Yeah, I mean, I honestly feel at this point, like because I've been on parental leave far enough removed that I don't know that I have a good answer on that one. And I know that they're undergoing a strategic planning process right now. So I just, I, I think that there's not a clear, clear answer. I mean, I think the thing that remains absolutely fundamental to College Possible is helping students from low-income backgrounds, both to college and through college. I think one of the things that I can say is that there's also a lot of interest and support about helping students launch into careers as well. So really one of the things that's so interesting about sort of college success research is that at first the focus was on getting students from low-income backgrounds to college. And we thought, oh, we got them to college, they're all set. And then we realized that the graduation rates were not the same at all. So then it was getting students to and through college and now it has expanded into helping students launch into careers because sort of just like with first generation college going, uh, there's a lot of sort of different workplace navigating the career process that is also sort of implicit knowledge too. So you're currently right in the middle of ed tech. It's just great to have you on here and learn all about your experience in education. If you could give any advice to entrepreneurs who have an education slash technology idea, maybe it's even been tested in some way, or perhaps a study would obviously be good. Uh, but what kind of, you know, someone has this idea, they, they want to implement it, 
what would be a, a just some general advice that, that you might give someone? Yeah, I mean, I think being really, really grounded in the end user and recognizing that there are multiple end users in any education product, I think is really crucial. So, you know, at Persistence Plus, really, our end user was the student who was receiving um, mobile behavioral nudges. But we also needed to be ready and have designed for easy implementation with the institution. So we really had to think about grounding in the student experience and doing a lot of student interviews to understand how they responded to text messages, why they responded to something or didn't. And we needed to ground ourselves in the institution because the institution was both who we were selling to, but it's also who we were implementing with. And it's who we had real mission alignment with. We really want to see higher retention rates for students. And so really making sure that we were aligned with the institution and grounded in the institutional viewpoint was crucial. So I think when I think about education product design, I think the sort of the, the one of the trickiest dances is the dance of figuring out who you're designing for at any given point in time. And so how was the cooperation between, uh, you know, students uh, testing your product out and uh, institutions, educators, uh, was it easy to kind of find some to get on board or was it uh, a little challenging? Yeah, um, both at Persistence Plus and College Possible, I sort of stepped into those roles when they had their very early clients. So they had sort of the very first users, essentially. So I was less involved in that very early um, finding the early partners, but essentially learning that the process of launching well was one that I was really involved in and then learning from those launches to, to continue reiterating um, for future um, product design too. So, you know, I think with both with Persistence Plus and College Possible, the amount of work that goes into your first set of launches is tremendous. And then it's a matter of stepping back and doing some postmortems and figuring out what you learned and really synthesizing from there. Were you basically offering this as a free service uh, so you can get data? No. So both in, in any of these instances, they've been um, paying, paying partners. And really part of what I have been involved in with both organizations was both launching well and um, developing new partnerships. So figuring out, and a lot of the work I did at Persistence Plus was figuring out how to both launch well and then redesign those systems for scale. So, hey, we got our first clients up and running. How can we do this next time with 10 times the number of clients or 10 times the number of students? What would it look like to have four times the number of students? So really sizing all of that out uh, and then also doing a lot of work there to both find and support new partners. And that's actually quite similar to my work at College Possible. So Persistence Plus, very much an ed tech organization. College Possible, much more services organization. But again, figuring out, okay, we launched. What, we, what can we do next time to launch more efficiently? Um, so with the same staff, but with four times the number of clients or 10 times the number of clients. Uh, but it's sure nice to get that first one because you have a story. Right. Yes. Yes. And, and really using that story well. So figuring out what you're learning along the way is crucial. 
you know, basically what I had said about being in graduate school was that I went with the intention of working, using it to work at a higher education institution, and then discovered that part of part of the joy of working in this fringe space is you get to work with a lot of different types of institutions. And one of the positions I was able to do that in was at Persistence Plus. So Persistence Plus is a mobile behavioral nudging platform for higher education institutions and students. So it's sending text messages that are really grounded in social psychology to students to help them develop the behaviors and planning mechanisms um, in order to be successful at college. So our, our sort of contractual relationship is with the higher education institution, but the end user is really the student who's benefiting from all of the different types of text messages that they're receiving. Do you gauge it as a, a student looked at the text? In other words, they opened it? Or uh, how do you know that these text messages, which is a great idea, are actually being implemented? These nudges. So our goal is the change in behavior. It's not necessarily that everyone responds to every single text, and certainly not every single text was a question. That would be a bit overwhelming. Um, but we worked with institutions to find ways to measure changes in student behavior. And one example of that was um, helping institutions with basic needs and students who were food insecure. So one example of a text message we sent was, was partly um, helping students understand that there were resources available at the institution to help if they were low on food. So there was a food pantry on this campus and um, there were also emergency funds on this campus. And our text message went out and they saw a very immediate uptick in access of both of those. So that's, a, that's more of an awareness raising example, but there were other places where we were able to measure changes in behavior around um, different sort of student success patterns as well. I didn't even think of the, that angle of here, here is a resource for you. Here, you know, mm -hmm. food, here is this and that. Uh, this, what went into my mind is uh, you've got a paper that needs to be turned in in two days. You better work right. on it. No, and you know, what's interesting both about my work at Persistence Plus and about College Possible is that a lot of times in higher education, we prep orientation with tons of crucial content for students to use throughout the semester. But let me tell you, when you are in orientation and you are brand new to college, there's a lot that you are processing. You are, if you're physically in the space, you're like, these students look like me or they don't look like me or they seem smarter than me or they all seem smarter than me. And so your brain is just doing a lot, right? So the likelihood of you remembering that there is a food pantry available or having the willingness to go there when the moment comes, it's just hard to remember those things. It's hard to know those things in the moment. So really the coaches at College Possible function as a way to help students remain connected to resources, get connected and remain connected. And that's a large part of what we were doing at Persistence Plus. I think in, in both of those roles, um, part of what I'm doing is help helping get a student further into the institution. So we're not trying to pull them out and have them use our platform a bunch. We're not trying to pull them out and be super psyched only about college possible. We want them really psyched about the institution they're at. So I think me, a picture of success in both of those situations was really helping a student be excited about where they're going, accessing resources about where they're going and, and being successful there. So 
very different. I will say one other thing just generally is those are two very different roles at two very different organizations. One, a super small startup um, ed tech focused and the other a national nonprofit that's been around for 20 years. And yet part of what I'm doing and have done in both of those roles is actually fairly consistent around what we're trying to achieve. So how many people work at College Possible? How many employees? Well, as a national nonprofit, we have hundreds of full-time team members across the country. And then we also have full-time AmeriCorps members who serve as near-peer coaches. So um, the AmeriCorps members change every one to two years. And they are recent graduates of college themselves. And the large percentage of them, a large majority of them, um, came from either first in family or from a low income or low wealth family um, themselves. So are really excited about helping students from like backgrounds. That is, that is awesome. And it must feel good to help people, right? Yeah, it absolutely does. And I think part of what I said earlier about really motivates me in education, I think motivates a lot of other people is just the fact that it really can be life changing. I think the thing that frustrates me so much is that it's pretty disproportionate in how it affects people's lives. So it's not, it's not equal. And we know it can be a great equalizer. So I think the question is, how do we really use both technology and other types of services to help it um, be more of the equalizer that it has the potential to be. That's awesome. Uh, Margaret Jakes Leslie, we can't thank you enough for being uh, on the EdNorth EdTech podcast. And you are a member of EdNorth, are you not? I am. I am. So I um, first started coming to events in October 2017, I think as a Startup Week event. Um, and certainly hope to get back to more and to log into some over Zoom as well, but have really appreciated all the opportunities to get to know others um, in the Twin Cities doing very like work. That's awesome. Hey, so if someone uh, would like to reach out to you, what's the best way? So if people ever want to get in touch, I'm always happy to talk all things um, college success and, and student support. LinkedIn, I think it's Margaret Jakes Leslie, and it's J-A-Q-U-E-S-L-E-S-L-I-E. And email is a little bit easier. It's just margaret.h, as in Harriet.Leslie, L-E-S-L-I-E. -E. looks just like a first name. Awesome. Margaret Jakes Leslie from College Possible, from Harvard. It seems I've been interviewing a lot of people that are Harvard grads, and I'm so intimidated by you, you Harvard people. Oh, uh, uh, please no, don't be. I'm not. Um, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not. So thanks again, and I thanks, look forward Dave. to uh, uh, meeting, perhaps, at yes. an Ed North event uh, post-COVID, and all will be uh, better someday. So uh, oh, Yes, I look forward to it, too. Thanks so much, Dave. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, we'll talk soon. All right. Well, thanks again to Margaret Jakes Leslie for being our guest on this Ed North EdTech podcast. If you are not a member, head on over to ednorth.org. Again, ednorth.org. It's free and it's just a great place. Also, Whatever platform you're listening to this on, subscribe, and you'll never miss. We've got some amazing guests coming up, so don't miss out and subscribe. And if you like this podcast, do us all a favor and give it a review. Whatever platform you're on, if 
you could write a review, give it stars, whatever, it would be very much appreciated. On behalf of the Ed North Ed Tech Podcast, I'm Dave Swerdlick, and we'll talk to you soon. We get to make the rules. 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 We get to make the rules.